Welcome to Speaking Highly with John Huck. I am your host, John Huck. If you can, if you like the show, please like, subscribe, rate, review across all podcast platforms uh, on YouTube. You can go to speakinghighly.com to get all your Speaking Highly needs. With me as always, Indy Fawcett. How are you, Indy? Doing great. I'm. I'm. Uh, we. I'm just energized by your intros. It's. It's uh, continued to be every week, week by week. You're my coach, dude. If we like, you're my trainer for this. Yeah. You know. You at know first, I mean? it like was a, a little aggressive. It was smash, and you know, I'm bringing in the the uh, uh, unneeded energy, I guess, to to the to the show. Uh, but now that we're 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 leveling down into a a, a nice uh, a nice uh, simmer. As we go, as yeah, we go. yeah, yes, yes, and we will be, and kind of exciting. We'll be we'll be doing in person podcasting in the next couple of weeks, yes. so that's that's pretty cool. Um, moving into a studio and uh, going to do it that way, and I think that'll give us a little more. I don't know. I think it'll be. I think it'll be a nice switch. You know, I think it'll be nice to be connected um, in person with with the guests. With that we can obviously our guest today is uh, Ted Alexandro and he is in New York so he probably wasn't gonna come out here to do the podcast <laughs> um, but we are we're talking to him about he put out uh, his the, he's calling it the lost album and uh, it's material that he, his his last two albums were 10 years apart and in the or maybe his first and second albums were 10 years apart which is very similar to mine. <laughs> My except he also has like four more out after it and he's also a national headliner and he's also um hilarious but um so he put took material that didn't make those first two albums that kind of because uh, comedians that you know if you're writing a lot you turn over jokes stuff gets replaced you only have so much time no one wants to watch a two-hour comedy special so you have to narrow it down and in that process you can sometimes lose very good jokes that you you know are happy with that you like um and and not to sound like a weirdo but when you like a joke as a comedian it's you know you you end up either outgrowing it or stopping it because you don't want to tell it anymore but when you have that material that you think is good enough for an album and, and it doesn't get on one you know like he's he mentions he did this material on late night shows on you know his comedy central special so he felt the material was out was already out there but I think it's okay to put that stuff onto an album so it can be consumed by fans of his, comedy fans. And if you don't know Ted uh, Alexandro, I highly recommend checking him out on YouTube. He's got a podcast. I think it's just called The Ted Alexandro Show. And um, he's, he's, a, he's a very smart dude. He's very funny. And he, is, um, he's, he was enjoyable to talk to. He's the kind of guy I feel like if I was in New York doing comedy all the time, I would seek him out to see what he was doing and hang out and let's have a drink. And, you know, I would I would force my friendship on him, Definitely. which I've done a couple times. It's worked out pretty well, I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we, we talked to him. But uh, but uh, how, how are you, man? Doing well. Um, you know, it's it's another week. Uh, studio build is happening this week. We have uh, construction happening and uh, it's my Frankly, my first construction project, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm anxious as hell. <laughs> yeah. Now let's 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 confirm. Let's let's. Um, I'm sorry, not confirm, but let's uh, clarify. When you say your first construction project, you're not building this. No. Hell right. No, okay. No, no. I just no. want to make sure it's going to stand up when it's done. I barely cleaned the cat litter box. So. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. That's no. about the extent of your building. Yeah. 
well, yeah, but uh, I stack poos. <laughs> but uh, yeah, me and my girlfriend produce podcasts out of our apartment, and um, we live in a back house, and there happens to be like a little carport right in our backyard. So uh, we convinced our landlord uh, to turn it into a studio, and uh, it's happening. And uh, we're gonna host a bunch of shows, and you could see this show and a bunch of other shows that we produce at uh, chobo.co slash podcast. That's C H O B O dot C O. Slash podcast. What what is Chobo? What where did you come up with that? So it's it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a story. It's actually a little bit of a funny story. So I grew up in a city called Vista, California, which is in North County, San Diego. Um, and much like uh, the brands of New, uh, I wanted to make a funny one-worded, esoterically named brand company. Um, so I started uh, like Fubu, like Fubu, <laughs> yeah, like all these fun companies. Um, and basically I was like, I put the word Vista where I'm from into Google translate and I just put it in Swedish. I put it in German. I put it in, uh, Japanese and I was just trying to get some funny one worded cool thing that wasn't the name of, that wasn't Vista. Right. That everything's wasn't spelling named. it out. Right. 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 So yeah. something esoteric. And then, so I found, uh, it was, uh, I believe Korean, oh, Japanese and Japanese, the English word Vista, not the Spanish word. Oh, okay. <laughs> the English word Vista um, means through uh, something through which you can look through a scope and view something, right? So l that's the English word Vista. Oh, you're looking at the Vista you're as yeah. in like almost like a horizon, right. but not really. And a Vista yeah. in Spanish is just, you know, it's a view. You know, you don't have to be looking through a scope, right? The English word, I, I didn't know the nomenclature. So um, yeah. I was looking it up. So the Spanish word Vista does not translate to Chobo. The English word Vista does. <laughs> so Chobo, uh, Vista in English translates to Chobo in Japanese. Uh, the, pronuncia okay. the pronunciation of the English word Vista, right? And then I found out also that Chobo also is a saying in Korean for people who are new at things at video games. So basically, if you're oh. a noob, like somebody who plays video games is a noob, you're a chobo in Korea. So like if I were to play Grand Theft Auto today, I would be a chobo because exactly. I'd never played it before. Exactly. Okay. And and so I kind of took that on as like kind of um, we're new at this. This is something we have no idea what we're doing, building podcast network and, and doing all this that is correct. stuff. So like it's okay to do to be that, to be there though. It, it's, it's, it's okay. And I think that's... That's kind of, I've kind of adopted that Korean um, uh, connotation in that let's just try it. If it fails, then we know how to not do something. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the kind of uh, uh, long story about about Chobo. But that's yeah. great, man. That's, that's great. That's yeah, great. Thanks. Um, are you and you're back out there? You went to a Dodger game. I went to a Dodger yeah. game. Um, oh, the Cubs. The Cubs. This is this happened a couple weeks ago. The Cubs threw a combined no hitter for the first time in their franchise history, and they did it at Dodger Stadium, which is right down the street from my house. And I didn't go to that game. <laughs> I went to the next game. Went to the game after that where they lost. Well, I did that. The last when when uh, Arietta threw the no hitter at Dodger Stadium, the second like two in a row the Cubs have thrown there. But I was on my couch getting texts from people in Illinois, like, "Hey, you're at this game, right?" Like, <laughs> "No, I have tickets for tomorrow. <laughs> Why would I go tonight when it's kick ass?" Yeah, yeah. No, uh, uh, but I, I I can one up you. I went to game. I believe it was game six of the 2018 World Series, Dodgers in Houston. Um, I, I believe. It oh, game. Uh, 
game I was there too. Game game five, the last game, right? No, it was the game before where the Dodgers won. And it was very like the next game was they were gonna they were gonna I literally I went to the game where the Dodgers won that game, but then oh, the next game they I went lost to the home. next World Series game where they lost. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit, man. That was so annoying. The Guggenheim, everybody. <laughs> the Guggenheim. They own the Dodgers. I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay. The Guggenheim. Well, the, some roll, family of shitbags owns it. the Cubs. Just roll with it. Yeah. The Cubs owners are terrible people, but, um, but the Guggenheim. Just, but the Guggenheim is a good guy. First guy. name the. Yeah. First name the. Yeah. Last name Guggenheim. Yeah. Magic Johnson's a part of it. You know, it's good. Oh yeah, dude. I mean, dude, did you see when the Dodgers bought <laughs> the Magic Johnson and that group? They bought the Dodgers and. He's up there going, Vince Scully. He kept calling, kept calling <laughs> Vince. him Vince Scully. It's just like, oh, my God. I used to see Magic Johnson at the games all the time, man. I yeah. had these weird seats that were kind of up up a level, and he was just – he'd always be walking around, signing autographs, a real personable dude. He was also – we. I was on an episode of uh, – I produced an episode of Punked where we punked Magic Johnson. <laughs> and uh, it was actually the only – nope, my mom's in two. She's in Frankie – um, Muniz, the kid from Malcolm in the Middle. My mom's in the background of that one, and then she, her and my dad are eating dinner. My mom and my aunt are in that one, and then her and my dad are eating dinner at the beginning of the Magic Johnson uh, episode great. or the prank. Yeah, it was awesome. really funny. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's get into Ted because it, it really is a good. It's a quick conversation because he didn't have a lot of time, but he was generous enough to um, give the time he did have. Uh, oh, yeah. Again, Ted Alexandro is. Uh, a comedic powerhouse i highly recommend checking out his specials on youtube check him out his comedy central stuff even from back in the day he was on dr Katz. i mean this guy has been around he's 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 one of the big guys out of new york as far as i'm concerned so uh enjoy ted alexandro everyone all right ladies and gentlemen ted alexandro uh how are you man I'm doing well, John. Thanks for having me on, man. <laughs> yeah, dude. Thank you. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, Ted just put out a new album. It's um, the it's ca he's calling it the Lost Album. He posted about it on Twitter. He said the first five people that respond to his post, he will do their podcast. I happen to have pounced on that, and that's why <laughs> we've got this going on now. Um, you acted fast, my friend. I, I I did, man. And what's crazy is I I've known who you are. I've been a fan for a really long time. And you know, just everything, you get busy and whatever. And then I kind of re-found you during the pandemic with your podcast. And I was like, man, and I, I really, you're, I think what I like is that, you, I don't want to call you a lone wolf because that sounds like you're some, you know, mercenary, but but you're <laughs> not like a clicky guy. You're, you're your own person. You have your own opinions. You don't seem to need to be, like um, in a group to get your point across, if that makes sense. I don't know if it does, but I I, I love the podcast. I love your point of view, and um, uh, I, uh, and then I watched some of Teachers Lounge, your web series, and um, holy shit, dude, that is really funny. <laughs> Thank you. The, just Thank the you. episode. If you go to his website, the episode that's on there right now, uh, the Jim Gaffigan episode, is dynamite, dude. I mean. It's just really funny. I laughed out loud the whole time. So thank you. Yeah, the Gaffigan episode uh, we did ten, and, and yeah. the Gaffigan one and the David Tell episode were my personal favorites. But they're they're all really funny. They're all really funny. But you you're also I mean Gaffigan and Attell are, I mean Attell especially not that not to take anything away from Gaffigan because he is a heavy hitter. But like Attell sure, is sure. 
Attell is a, uh, <laughs> I don't know, yeah, that guy's like a, a machine. I don't know. Yeah, he's like a comic savant. I mean, my my friend Hollis James and I, uh, we co-wrote and co-starred in Teacher's Lounge. All 10 episodes are free on Teacher's Lounge, by the way. Uh, and we wrote uh, with all of these various comedian friends of mine whom, whom I've known for decades. Uh, you know, we wrote towards their strengths. So yeah. with Dave, we cast him as the school photographer and <laughs> we kind of just we kind of borrowed in a sense from shows that we loved, whether it was Curb Your Enthusiasm or even going back to like Dr. Katz that would showcase comedians towards their strengths. Uh, and we figured, all right, let's just get Dave in the room, give him a few bullet points. And it was funny because uh, knowing Dave as I do. I've worked with him over the years, not just on stand-up, but uh, on various projects. I actually had him guest on my second Comedy Central half-hour special. Uh, I did a joke where I talked about how rappers always have guest stars, and wouldn't it be funny if comedians had guest stars on their jokes? And then I brought out Attell, Todd Barry, and Russ <laughs> Maneev, and, and we broke up one of my jokes into, uh, into four parts. Um, but the reason I bring that up is because Dave, when you, uh, he'll say yes to things, but then he tries to back out the whole way. I, I, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if this is funny. Has this been done before? It, you know, uh, and same thing with the school photographer thing. He's like, I can't act. Uh, is this too hacky? Uh, you know, I don't know if it's going to work. Uh, like literally on the day when he showed up, I'm like, Dave, you're going to be great. You know, you just kind of have to talk him off the ledge. Uh, and then sure enough, the guy he is, uh, he's a he machine it. gun. It's just yeah. punchline after punchline. Yeah. And I mean, if you watch, I, I encourage people to watch it. Uh, it's 95% him. We just, like I said, we kind of got him in the room. We gave him a few lines, a few kind of things to hit. And then the, the rest was just him as a, as a comedy hurricane. Yeah, I, I don't know. That reminds me, I don't know if you've heard the story about Rodney Dangerfield's first uh, movie, which was Caddyshack. He does his first scene, which is in yeah. the pro shop. Yeah. Nobody's, you know, they're like, oh, do it again. They do it three times. Like, Rodney doesn't look good. They're like, what's wrong? He's like, I'm dying out there. And it's like, what? He's like, nobody's laughing. He's like, they can't laugh. They'll ruin the take. And he's like, oh, oh okay. I thought I was tanking. And it's like right. Rodney Dangerfield thought he was tanking. It's like, yes, yes. I mean, for a, and for a tell to be, you know, he doesn't strike me as like a braggart or a blowhard or an no, egomaniac. So like he's nervous that he doesn't want to come into your project and then make it worse. He literally said that. He's like, I don't want to ruin your project. I'm like, Dave. Yeah, Dave. I wouldn't ask be. you if I thought you were going to ruin it. Like, that's, there's no. Great. Yeah, yeah. And of course, he and you mentioned and you mentioned Dr. Katz, which it is probably the first time I saw you. But I do feel like I remember the Jesus abs joke from your special. Yeah, so you got I, it. But I feel like, but Dr. Katz, like what you just said, how you're using people, you write to their strengths. That's essentially like you're in a doctor's office. What are your jokes? Because yes. that's like everybody's material. I mean, that's what Brian yeah. Regan was on doing material. Like that, that's all they did is. That was such a classic show for many reasons uh, i mean first of all because jonathan katz is a hilarious comedian and so singular in his kind of uh kind of low pay energy uh sardonic kind of yeah. sarcastic uh take on on things 
but also the obviously the animation with the squiggle vision was very singular um and then yeah what a perfect vehicle for comedians just bring them in and have them do their act under the guise of of talking Therapy. to a psychiatrist you know yeah, yeah. It, was, it was great which, which is very funny and on another layer of like <laughs> You know, comics probably need therapy. <laughs> this is what we do is we write jokes about it. But like, I mean, that that show is all heavy hitters. It's all Attell, Todd Berry, it, you know, Brian Regan, it, Laura Keitlinger. It's it's all just I feel like yes. every New York comic from the late 80s to the 90s is like on Dr. Katz. Uh, and it gave. Well, honestly, I mean, it gave, uh, yeah, that, that's why I felt. I, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, no, no. That's why I felt so excited when I got the call to do it, because it, it really was comics that at that time were kind of out of, out of my league. Uh, I was kind of, you know, I, I had had a Comedy Central special. Uh, I don't think I had had the second one yet, but, you know, I, I, I was I was I had a few credits, but not the, like the people who you yeah. mentioned previously. I mean, you're so. you're walking in and that's. It's always interesting to me because you you obviously developed and you're 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 an amazing comedian in your own right. But like those first couple of years of like when you start to get the call and people want to hire you and you're like, well, I'm not. After years of like, why can't I get more stage time? How come no one's going to let me headline? Why the fuck am I featuring for this loser? Like after <laughs> years of that, then you're like, well, why are you calling me? What, what do you want? You want me to do what? My God, like it, it, it's it fucks with our head a little bit, I think. Yeah, it's funny how the shift takes place because sometimes the the real realization that you belong takes place off stage when you're just having a conversation with David Tell or somebody and you realize he's talking to you as a peer, you know. So those little interactions where Dave, you know, I remember Dave telling me downstairs at the Bagot Inn under uh downstairs from uh from the Boston Comedy Club, uh I had just done a set, you know, I was probably 5 years in thereabouts. And Dave invited me down for a drink and he just said, you know, I've seen you around and I think you've got uh, something different and special and think really funny. So for Dave to say that a guy who I've been watching for years. So uh, those kind of moments, uh, you know, whether it was Dave or, or it could have been any veteran comic, really, uh, who you looked up to, to to get affirmation. That's really when you start to feel like you belong, probably even more so in a certain sense than any kind of bookings that you get. That's that's a very solid point. I mean, I um, never sat at the table at the cellar upstairs, but I've sat near it and I've seen the people that sit at it and I'm like, oh yeah, okay. And then at one point, I've only been there, I've only been to the cellar once, I think, or twice. Um, I walked in, I sat down and there was like, I can't even remember, but I remember going, oh, don't look over there. Don't look over there. <laughs> Just like everybody over there is amazing. And then I went downstairs and it was great. It was the only time I've seen Greg Giraldo live. And oh, wow. he was, I mean, destroying the entire room. It was, I'm leaning around a thing trying to watch. It was so packed and it was so hot. And I was, I was crying, laughing. And then he gets off and I happened to be standing right where he had hung up his coat and his bag. And, and I was like, dude, that was, I mean, Jesus that was fucking hilarious and he was like i i did i didn't understand it then but i understand it more now the year, more years i put in it's like he was like ah oh, thanks man i appreciate that it was okay you know and like i was like okay dude if i did that i'd be like i'm richard Pryor. like i would be freaking <laughs> out like but then yeah. you realize as it goes that's not what happens you're like you always want it to be better you can always do in your head you can always sure. do better you yeah. flub a line you do something nobody else knows but you know 
That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And there are people, it's funny because you talk about people who kill, right? And everybody has sets. If you're doing it long enough, you have sets where you kill. But there's the, that that group of people who just, they have another gear. And, and Greg was definitely one of them, you know, it tells yeah. another. But yeah, the, the kind that, I guess it's a rhythm thing too, uh, and a pacing thing where they can kill so hard. But that's that's a great point too. Like he might've just been thinking about the one new joke where he flubbed a word or just didn't get the phrasing right. You, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. Uh, that's what you come off thinking about. Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, I understand as as an artist, you want your art to be, but there is no such thing as perfection. That's not a attainable goal. No. So you need to throw it out the window and just try to be authentic and do the best you can do. I mean, I don't know how else to, <laughs> what else to do. Sure, sure. And also to your point about the seller, there is almost that high school dynamic of, and it's another gauge, right? It's another gauge that you can only feel in that room. You cannot, you know, like... If you're standing on the outside and you're not past at the club and you see, you know, all of the regulars and you see maybe uh, that night, you know, Ray Romano's in or Chris Rock or, or whoever, uh, you know, that that's a daunting thing. And it's daunting even if you're sitting there as someone who's past the room. But that's another gauge. And I've felt that over the years, too, from feeling like I don't belong there. I'm just going to do my set and leave. I'm not even going to sit at the table to yeah. uh, now being friends with everyone. And, you know, it's like, it's just all people that I know. So it's a very, so over the course of many years, and you never think you're going to get there. It's always just like, ah, you know, uh, you, certain things you're kind of afraid of. But then as, as years go by, like, you know, uh, even the owner, Gnome and, and SD, the booker, were at, were at my wedding, you know, and I, ne I never would have thought that even when I started, like, I kind of felt like they were, you know, uh, kind of authority figures. <laughs> yeah, right, right. The gatekeepers. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were a teacher before uh, yeah. you went comedian full time. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that where the teacher's lounge idea came from? Just like, is it is based on a slight reality of just like, ah, yeah. these fucking kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just thought, you know, autobiographical is always good if you have an angle on something. And, and I just thought the school environment is such a natural for comedy. Um, and, you know, I taught for five years. I was a music teacher. So that's what Hollis and I created a world where I was the music teacher. He was the janitor. And we were always yeah, that's just, I'm sorry to interrupt. Jim, yeah. Jim Hollis is the uh, the guy in the Gaffigan episode who's there with you at the beginning, correct? That's right. We're all, yeah. In the okay. beginning of every episode, he and I he, are usually kind of just hanging out alone. And then in comes, you know, Gaffigan whoever, yeah. as the school nutritionist right. or Judy Gold as the gym teacher. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it, that was the basic idea is like, you know, Hollis and I have known each other since college. In fact, I started uh, comedy as a duo with uh, we were we did comedy as a duo around New York. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of a, a cool entree into the clubs and figuring things out and learning the, the lay of the land. Um, so yeah, we've, we've continued collaborating throughout the years, even though, uh, he doesn't do stand up anymore. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, it was, it was just a good way to, to get my feet wet. And then when we did teachers lounge together, we had so much history writing and performing together. It was easy. Uh, yeah. it, it was easy. Yeah. And then just getting my friends as the comedians, whether it was, you know, Michael Che was in it. Uh, Todd Barry was the librarian, uh, <laughs> It was great. It was just a lot of fun, you know, and everybody said yes. So that was another you, you talk about these affirmations, right? When I'm reaching out to all these people and I remember Che in particular was in between, if you can believe it, he was on this crazy streak. He was in between. Uh, he had just done The Daily Show as his correspondent and then got the offer for SNL. 
So I think we got him like in the week the, in between, you know. So that like, he had a t that he had time. Yeah, he fit he fit teachers lounge in between those two shows, you know. So it was great. That's awesome. I mean, I I do I love that. I love uh, I love the idea that you know there are just people you asked to do it. like, Hey man, you want to be in this thing? It wasn't like, we got a contract negotiate. We have to, uh, we have to, Oh, we have to lowball so-and-so to get more money for t it's like, Hey man, we're doing a web series. It's really funny. You would be great. Yeah, dude, I'll do whatever you want. Like, yes, yeah, yes. That's I, the, I, that's the beauty of the comedian relationships. You know, on the one hand, uh, it would be nice to have that other experience of like, hey, I got a pilot uh, and I want you to. <laughs> to sure. Be in it. Yeah. Yeah. You and know, you will uh, get paid properly. And yeah. Well, yeah. Then you have all the, the machine machinery behind you. Uh, but I also really do value. And, and I should mention, we also did a Kickstarter for Teachers Lounge and we raised fifty thousand dollars. And money came from all corners of the world, really, because I, I've performed everywhere now. I've performed in the Middle East. You know, I've performed in uh, Australia, Singapore. Uh, so all these comedic relationships that I had formed over the years, like really kind of bore fruit. I mean, not to say that you know, that's why I did it, but it was really nice to receive uh, even the money that put us over the top, I think, came from uh, Singapore, a friend who was like, how much do you need to uh, to get over? And I was like, I think we're like 1500 away. And he he wrote a check to put us over the top. So, you know, uh, just to just to note that the feeling of doing things yourselves, as Hollis and I did, and to rely on relationships, I think you can see that in the final product, too, because. Uh, there is a lot of history and, and really love and friendship between all the people who collaborated. Yeah, yeah. I <clears throat> of all the things I I know about you, um, I did not know you were a comedy duo. I did not. I I never I never knew that. What? Yeah. That's such a rare. I mean, I think it was more more something people did way back in the day. Like, <clears throat> yeah. excuse me. Like my dad was a big Bob and Ray fan, and you know, like sure. uh, like Chris, Mel Brooks, uh, Chris, and, El Chris Elliott's dad, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's we. That's why we watched Get a Life together because Chris. <laughs> my, when my dad realized that Chris Elliott had cast his real father to play his dad, my dad lost. He was like, "Well, this is fantastic." And my mom's like, "This show is great," and I'm like, "Maybe I'll live above the garage when I'm 35." And she's like, "Get the fuck out of here! That's insane." <laughs> right. But yeah, but but Bob and Ray and like Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner, the 2,000 year old man, all that kind of stuff, and. I, I feel like when I first started doing stand-up, I think the Walsh brothers who were out from Boston were like the only do oh the Scalar brothers, I guess. Brothers, um, yeah. But it's like their family, their brothers, you know, I, they've been related. So to do it with somebody, like Carlin was a duo. George right. Carlin was a duo before he decided. What was the, what was the, um, well, what was your main, what was the shtick like? What was the, what did you guys do? You know, we had come from uh, a sketch group in college. We went to Queens College together and Hollis was the one. He was kind of a tour de force, like he founded the sketch group, uh, you know, went to the the chairperson of the drama department and said, can we create this? And he would put up uh, two shows a year, uh, like one in the I guess the what the fall, one in the spring. So he cast it, he wrote it, he directed it. It was like, you know, he was kind of a one man wrecking crew of putting on these shows. So I went and uh, auditioned and we struck up a friendship. So I handed him some things that I had written kind of sheepishly, like some sketches I screwed around with. And he said, these are good. We'll put them in the show. 
So that to me was like the first inkling of, wow, you know, like I can write comedy and perform. And I, I mean, I grew up loving stand up, loving SNL, but never, you know, I, I thought it was like going to the moon or something like yes. out of reach. Yeah. Uh, so Hollis was really someone I saw with just this kind of uh, really focused work ethic to just when you want something, you go for it. So uh, so we started with sketch. And then when we graduated, we just started going around as uh, as a duo. We auditioned at the comic strip, stand up New York. We'd go to you know any stage we could find, really. And uh, it was essentially like little sketches. You know, we were <clears> kind <throat> of in, in essence, uh, we were we were taking bits or ideas from sketches we had written uh, and just doing like, OK, here's um, uh, like bodybuilders uh, arguing over uh, literature or whatever. You know, we just do like little pieces and then on to the next uh, vignette kind of thing. Yeah. OK. All right. That's cool. And what was the why did you guys sort of separate or why was that? Why did it become something you you didn't do anymore? Well, I think it was because it was hard to always write together, always uh perform together and more and more i was like getting uh bitten by the bug of writing my own stuff uh yeah. so i was like you know i'd like to try this so and also we were doing it sporadically it wasn't like we were i don't even we were kind of naive we didn't realize you have to do this every single night like if we had a great set once every two weeks or three weeks you know like we we auditioned at at the strip and got a call back with really like no you know, that was one of our first sets. Like we were like, OK, we'll come back. We were so naive that we came back with a new uh, five or six minute set because we were like, oh, I guess they want to see like a new like we didn't do. We didn't repeat a single joke, you know, from that yeah. first set that got us to the second <laughs> to the second one. Uh, so we were very naive and didn't realize that, you know, the rhythms of everything and, and the repetition. Sure. Um, but to your question, yeah, I, I, more and more, I was just of the mindset, like, I really want to see what I can do as a solo. So that it kind of just went in that direction. Uh, yeah. And you mentioned SNL. Um, what are you, you're born and raised in New York, correct? Yeah. And so it was, it was always kind of right there and you knew it was there, but was that like a, that was a huge influence for you? Well, who were your other, who else did you see that you were like, I want to I want to get in comedy. I want to get involved in that. I want to I think I could do that or man that looks interesting. Well, I mean SNL was always uh such a a part of the you know just societal landscape, the comedic landscape of, you know, your friends were always talking about it from the time you were in like probably 4th grade or whatever. Uh so as the casts went along, there were always new people, new sketches, new characters to talk about and imitate and joke around at school about. So that was just a, a part of like anyone who was funny, you were kind of talking about that. Yeah. Um but as far as like people that made me think I could do stand up, I mean, you know, in a weird way, I guess like guys that are from New York and there's a lot of the greats that are, you know, whether it's Carlin, um Eddie Murphy, is from Long Island. Uh, and for that matter, Jerry Seinfeld uh, graduated from Queens College as well as did uh, Rick Romano. So I had two guys that were kind of just like, you know, maybe 15 years ahead of me uh, that were blowing up. Seinfeld obviously was a very respected stand up, had done every show there was to do and then got his own show. And that like didn't wasn't a huge hit out of the gate, but then became huge. So for me, as someone who w went to Queens College and uh, was pursuing comedy, you know, even though I didn't have his style, I, I, you know, I definitely respected his craft and he put out his documentary. Uh, I think it was called Comedian. 
Um, so as I was starting and his show was just becoming a phenomenon, I couldn't help but also really be, uh, you know, inspired by his path. Yeah. And it looks it's it's someone who's close enough to you in terms of, you know, region, location. Mm -hmm. And you see them what they do. And you're like, oh, that that's obtainable. I, that's obtainable. I can that's something that like, no, you're not going to write the show Seinfeld. No, you're not Jerry Seinfeld. But you know that. If if like wow somebody out of Queens is getting accepted here like there's a, there's room for me like I feel like when you yeah. see someone else go you're like oh I I can go too like I'll just sure. go you know <laughs> yeah it's not as daunting because it's like I recognize the way he talks I recognize the things he talks about you know and it doesn't even have to be Seinfeld because as, as you know uh, there's even like comedians that aren't that good that inspire you for the reason that you're mentioning like, oh, you know, they're going up night after night. I, you know, I can I can do that. I can try, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I could give it, it a shot. Both. Yeah. Yeah. You get yeah. It from both ends. Um, as far as because you have you have four albums out before Five. the Lost album. Five. Yeah. Before. This is well, this, this is the fifth. The fifth uh, one. OK. Right. Now, I know that when I first read the description of the album, um, I, I, it made me think like, yeah, I've, my two albums are 10 years apart or 11 years apart. Mm. And there's so much material that got lost in there. But also from like, I feel like just a, even a shorter amount of time, like, you know, weeks and months, you'll have a joke and it, it'll get pushed out for something else. And then it just kind of gets forgotten. And, yeah. then, and then you go back and you're like, oh, fuck, what? Whatever happened to this joke? This is a good joke. Why, didn't, why am I not telling this anymore? Yes. How, what was the process? 10 years of material for you is a lot of material i'm assuming like you're going up all the time in the big rooms what how did you narrow it down to get this album you know because it's yeah. all it is all it's not one consecutive they're bits taken out of uh shows that you did right yeah yeah it's kind of a patchwork of of many years uh as you said 11 years in between my first and second album and in fact i even used a few bits from before my first album that I had forgotten to put on, uh, like literally forgot, because my first album, I just did one show at the taping. And when I got off, uh, although the show went great, there was like a couple of jokes that were like signature do. signature bits in those early years that I forgot, you know? Uh, and then by the time my second taping was, you know, 11 years later, I wasn't doing that joke anymore. Right. Uh, so I, a few of those types of bits wound up on the Lost Album, as did the material from those 11 years. Uh, and what was interesting, I, I think my mindset was that I was putting the material out. Uh, there's a lot of this that was from my second half hour Comedy Central special. So the figure like around 20, I guess those are usually about 22 minutes. So 22 minutes from uh, that special. Uh, a couple of late night sets, Letterman, Conan. So the stuff was going out there. And in my mind, I was like, ah, I don't really need to put out an album. It's, it, you know, people have seen those jokes. Um, but now there's such a shift to the thing of like, yeah, put out an album every year, every two years. Um, so when the pandemic hit, uh, there was the opportunity to go back. And there was, you know, there was a temptation to make it a double album because there was so much stuff. Um, but yeah. ultimately, because of you know a lot of stuff could be ephemeral and just of that time um but i ch i tried to choose the stuff that even if it was about a particular topic because there's jokes about michael jackson about katrina type, like yeah katrina. you're going you're going back and yeah 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 so there's some stuff that is uh, of a specific time but 
I felt like it still resonated in term thematically in, in, in terms of like themes of, of what's still being discussed in terms of government and power and, and things like that. And it also kind of marks the time. So I thought, let me take the things that I think have value, stand up uh, and are still funny. So that was ultimately the, the hour that I settled on. Yeah, I think I think a uh, good call, because I think that if you were if you were old enough to remember Katrina, it's not something you forget. I mean, it destroyed yes. New Orleans. You you know, I'm not going to like not remember what, what I was doing on 9-11. I'm not going to like if you were yeah. around at these times, these are these are benchmark. These are, you know, historical catastrophes or whatever. And yeah. If you reference them, they 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 they're not any less fresh now. I don't think you know what I mean. It's that's it's, that's such a good point too because those are pivotal moments in American history. And now that I hear you articulate it, those were pivotal moments in my development as a comedian because sure. I I shifted from you know more observational stuff, more personal stuff. Um, in that second Comedy Central special and in what turned out to be the Lost album, there's a lot more. Uh, kind of macro themes of talking about the world, talking about the United States, power, all these things. Uh, and as you say, with Katrina, right? Like now we're seeing almost like an annual natural disaster. So uh, yeah, it, it's kind of interesting to to look back on. Yeah, I mean, I because that's what my first, when I looked at the, the list of uh, track titles and I was like, oh, Katrina. And at first I was like, oh, maybe that's just about a girl because my, <laughs> my, my friend has a daughter named Katrina. And I'm like, OK. But, yeah. but then I was like, listen, I'm like, oh, you know what? Yeah, of course you can still talk about that. If, that stuff doesn't if you were if you were around for it. I mean, it, you know, right. maybe like my producer, Indy, was born in 1993. So maybe he doesn't know what the fuck's going on. But but like uh, Katrina was like, you know, people remember that shit. It's it's pivotal. And I, it's nice to hear that you say that it was pivotal and also to who you are and how you started you know, your material evolved and your voice is growing and, you know, who you are as an artist sort of comes out more. Mm -hmm. um, and who was this your idea to do? Or did you have a manager or agent who was like, hey, why don't you? No, I've been working without representation for, oh, I love uh, it. gosh, I don't know if it's eight years now. I would say like at least half of my career, maybe more by now, uh, has been without any representation, manager, agent, uh, I have a guy who kind of serves as a booker who sends me um, club dates from time to time. He's like, oh, like, hey, they had a fallout here. <laughs> you want to do this? But that's really my only tie to the business. Everything else, like, I opened for Jim Gaffigan. So, like, you know, I have that on my calendar as far as touring. And, you know, I, I'm doing arenas and theaters rather than, you know, little comedy clubs that, that I would likely be doing otherwise. Uh, so, yeah, I, I like kind of leaving room uh, and seeing what happens, but also I like the autonomy of kind of what you're asking with this album. This was all, it was my decision to do it. And I, I actually put out three albums slash specials during the pandemic. Uh, I, the first one was kind of a lark. I did, uh, something called stay at home comedian. I was doing these nightly Instagram lives at the start of the pandemic, just kind of, you know, extemporaneously talking through, uh, all of the weirdness and how the world was changing and interacting with people who were commenting uh, and different people hopped on. Jim Gaffigan came on one night, Todd Barry. Um, so, you know, over the course of like maybe two and a half, three weeks, uh, I said to my friend Matthew, who who has produced a couple, uh, directed a few of my specials. Um, I think, you know, if we kind of chop this into like the best moments, 
I think this could be like a funny, we'll call it a comedy special, but I mean, I shot it on a phone in my living room during the pandemic. Uh, so we called it stay at home comedian and put that out, just posted it to YouTube. And the New York times wound up reviewing that and, and saying, it's like, it's the first special of the pandemic. It's really unique and uh, marks the time. And so, you know, it wound up kind of exceeding my expectations. Um, but again, that it's to your point of like, when I have an idea, I don't have to run it by eight different people and have them say like, well, maybe we should do this. Or what if you tried that? Or, you yeah, know, let it's them just like, ruin it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, this is my idea. I, I talk to my friend who I collaborate with. He gets it. He edits it the way I ask. We go back and forth on the edits. Um, so that that was the first one. And then I put a, a cut up was the album that I was preparing to, to shoot as a proper special. But again, with the pandemic, I was like, let me put that together from three sets that I've recorded uh, at the cellar, the Village Underground and Helium in Portland. Uh, and we'll make that kind of a patchwork album. And then when I finished that, I said, let me finally get to this lost album, you know, because I have the time. Uh, I have all the footage. Let me dig into that. So it was kind of that that was the uh, chronology of how these three, you know, album specials came out during yeah. the pandemic. I guess I didn't I didn't I didn't see stay at home comedian i saw i saw cut up and it was great man it was fantastic I, I loved it dude thank you um and again you kind of working with the situation at hand like yes it's sets put together you know it's not one whole show but that that's the that's where we we're at you know you couldn't go out and do a whole show it was impossible so right you, you made the best of it and you put put all the stuff out which was I don't know. I loved it. Um, and I, I have to just quickly say, I, I, I kind of like, even though there's something to be said for the splashy big special in a beautiful theater and a crowd that's just ripe and ready and laughing. And they even pump in laughs uh, in the, uh, in the edit. Um, I like the patchwork feel of um, this is what comedians do. We do a bunch of sets in a bunch of places, uh, it's a different vibe every night. Uh, I I kind of like that representation of stand up for these two specials. And I think true comedy fans, like people that come out to see not just you, but like who love comedy, who are at the cellar every weekend, who are, you know, just the rabid fans. Yeah. They like that better, too. They like that you're giving the experience of what they go through you're you know they're they're at a club it's not a big theater it's not a flashy thing they're not being escorted in by a seat filler guy who has to put you have to be here can't go to the bathroom yet here's a candy bar until for four hours enjoy that like yeah. those that kind of taping is just it, it takes away from comedy comedy it's is a bit, an intimate experience it's like yeah yeah that's a bit manic because it's not uh representational of of what it's like to be an audience member right because they realize they're being taped as well so the, the stakes are so much higher uh, as opposed to just attending a show, which is what I'm showing. The audience didn't know that was going to be my special. They were just right. there for a night of comedy. Yeah. And also, uh, you didn't have any audience reaction shots. Right. right. That was, a, that was yeah. a choice as well. Yeah. Because I, I could have had like some. Uh, but yeah, that was a choice. I don't, I don't particularly like don't those. It's them. like, who, ca who cares if you don't need them? <laughs> right. Right. You don't need them. I know. I, I saw Mark Norman's special, and I was like, thank God, not one audience reaction shot. Like, I don't need to see some lady la like laughing. Like, I can hear the laughter. I'm laughing at the jokes. I know yeah. they're funny. Like, <laughs> I don't need to yes. see the audience reacting. I always found that to be super weird. Yes. Um, did you, besides Teacher's Lounge, when you were a teacher, what care, like, what was the 
first of all, what was the tipping point where you're like, I don't need to do this anymore. I can do comedy full time. And was it a difficult decision or were you like, nope, I'm gone. See ya. No, it, it was a pretty easy decision. Uh, I went back for my fifth year and I kind of knew in my gut, like it, I, I, I'm done. <laughs> so as the year started and comedy was, I, I think I had just done like uh, Montreal Festival just for laughs and things had gone well there. So then it's like, I'm going back to my teaching job and, uh, you know, and getting some other things and getting more and more road work. So I'm like having to go into school and teach uh, elementary school kids the recorder. And it's just kind of wearing on me. Uh, so eventually I told the principal who, you know, I had a good relationship, fortunately, with all the faculty and the administration. So I said, um, I'm going to I'm going to call it quits at the uh, holiday break when it gets to, you know, Christmas break. I'm, uh, and I wound up actually going out to LA for pilot season around like February or whatever it was. But yeah, the timing was right. I think of looking back, probably I shouldn't have gone back even for the fifth year, but you know, whatever, it, it was fine. Yeah. 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 Um, when you went out to LA for pilot season, I, I recently saw a, a little bit of your podcast where you talked about kind of the I think someone asked you a question about what do you prefer the New York or the LA scene and you very you know smartly you know kind of describe both scenes and and there is a lot of in LA there is a lot of you know um you know I I act I do want to do more acting but also I I love stand up and I it's a separate they're two separate things but you can do them both out here whereas like you had mentioned <clears throat> New York is a little bit more stand up, stand up, stand up. There's not so much. I mean, yes, they do commercials. They do. They have acting out there. It's not like it doesn't exist. But for the most part, like a, if someone's like, I'm a New York comic, that's a person who goes up as many nights and as often as they can. And and you kind of know that just uh, in in the definition of you know who they are and what they do. But um, what, how because you're great in teachers lounge like you, you have a natural you can I feel like you can act. So is there anything I don't know, guys like Brian Regan and Geraldo, they had, you know, countless pilots that didn't get picked up. Did that happen to you? Did you do multiple pilots or were, did you kind of just lose the acting idea and not really, didn't really interest you after a while? Well, I loved acting and, and still do. And that was really my background. Uh, before I ever set foot on a stand-up stage, I did a lot of community theater. I was lucky that uh, our local church did a musical every summer. So I did like, you name it, you know, all the usual suspects like uh, Grease. Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat. I didn't do that one, surprisingly, <laughs> but that's a good guess. <laughs> I think they did that after I left. <laughs> Uh, but I'm familiar with it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, all those Godspell, West Side Story, yeah. uh, Oklahoma, the, the whole nine yards. So I had, uh, you know, a little uh, uh, birdie, uh, bye bye birdie. I had done all of the usual canon of high school and college musicals by the time I graduated uh, and performed a, a lot. So being on stage was not a problem for me. Uh, and acting was not a problem for me. And then I further took acting classes around New York and stuff like that. So yeah, I, I loved it. And, and I saw myself going in that path. You know, I really, I wanted to do both. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I auditioned for a lot of stuff, did a couple pilot seasons out in LA. Um, but yeah, just never, never got, got a couple of callbacks here and there, but never got, got cast in anything. So yeah, now that I'm kind of out of the pipeline, you really need to have an agent and be in that pipeline where you're going out all the time. Yeah. Um, so unless yeah. unless somebody calls you and offers you something that knows you. Well, that's yeah, that's kind of what I'm hoping the universe has in store because you know it's funny they you brought up Brian Regan, 
And I don't know if you've seen um, the, I can't remember which network has it, but it's a comedy starring uh, the guy from uh, Office Space. Great actor. Ron, Ron, Living Ron Livingston? Li yes. Yes. Yeah. It's called, uh, this new show is called Louder Milk. Yeah. And, yeah. And Brian I Regan, haven't seen it, but I know it's, I, I know it's on Amazon, I think. Check it out. Brian Regan is a regular and, and uh, there it's basically Ron Livingston plays a recovering addict who runs a, a group and Brian Regan is one of the people in the, uh, in, in the 12 step program and and he's great he's great you know like uh at first it's just funny but then you can see like as the writing expands and they give him more to do uh there's some really beautiful dramatic moments from brian regan and the knock on him that i always heard oh he can't he can't act that's why they've tried a few times they've you know he can't act and sure enough i guess uh this is by the farrelly brothers by the way who, who created louder milk so oh. i would imagine being uh, as big comedy fans as they are and they've used a bunch of comics over the years uh, they probably just cast Brian Regan in this role and he's great, you know? So, um, yeah, so that I have my fingers crossed that as I go along, maybe some people will, uh, keep me in mind for stuff. Yeah, man. I, yeah. And, and as far as the, like people knocking, like he can't act, that's why all his pilots don't get picked up. Um, the pilots don't get picked up because either they're not good and that's not the comedian's fault. That's sure. the writer's fault. That's the executive producer's fault. That's the production's fault. A million um, things, or right? the suits have no fucking idea what comedy is, which is usually it's the latter. It's like, and I'm not trying to bash anybody, but like people who don't do comedy, who don't act, then making the calls and calling the shots on what gets passed and what goes where. Uh, you know, that's a little bit mind numbing. It's like, yeah. why are you, who are you? Who are you? You've done nothing. You've done nothing. And now you have an opinion about this? Interesting. Yeah. And then, they know, yeah. And then the audience doesn't get, and an audience won't get a chance to see it because it's, you know, cut down at the knees before it ever gets anywhere. But I will I definitely that, yeah. check out Louder Milk. Yeah. Yeah. Brian's great in that. Uh, I think the problem with a lot of those suits is that they confuse uh, what their role is. It, uh, like a good leader in that scenario goes to the talent and says, how can I support you? What do you need? Well, you know, how can I go to bat for you instead of like giving comedic notes on, oh, I think we need this or that. You know, like if you trust the artist and, and the uh, kind of brain trust uh, of the creative team, uh, then just support them. You gave them the show and, and let them create what they're going to create, you know? So I think the best executives wind up doing that, but it's yeah. few and far between. It is. And, I, and I'm not trying, I wasn't trying to say there aren't any good executives. I didn't mean it like that, but there, there no, there's, I agree with what you're saying that they, yeah. they lose the, they lose the, um, role that they're supposed to be playing. And then they're all of a sudden given notes on things that, and in order to make themselves feel important or make their boss think that they have an idea or get, get my, if I don't get my two cents in, why am I even here? I'm going to get oh. fired. So there's a yeah. lot of talking to hear yourself talk so that other people can hear you talk. And then that's where you get a lot of crisscross and nonsense and whatever. Sure. Um, dude, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Do you have anything Pleasure. coming up? You have dates coming up? Are you, Oh, I wanted to ask you, you I, was this this the joke you were semi-retired was that like a <laughs> what was that like I, i'm like oh he's not doing comedy anymore that's why i started watching your podcast because i was like what, what do you mean he's not doing comedy anymore <laughs> i was confused <laughs> then it worked <laughs> it's a, get um, people to the podcast by saying you're never going to go on stage again <laughs> no you know I, during the pandemic i now have i'm married and i have uh, an 18 month old son and oh, a congratulations 
Thank you. And a two month old daughter. So Jesus. we've got two little you know, kids on, under two. So my life in the pandemic was so much about home and family. Uh, and I started, you know, doing the podcast and stuff. So it was more like, you know, this is my new life. I don't, I don't care if I ever do stand up again, you know? So I, I was kind of tongue in cheek referring to myself as a retired comedian okay, as I, yeah. as I put out three albums and specials. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was like yeah. for a retired guy, you're putting out a lot of content. I'm pretty busy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, but, I love uh, it, dude. To answer your question, uh, I all my dates upcoming are uh, at tedalexandro.com. Uh, the one that's most, uh, uh, what, what did you say? Most recent, not recent. Most, coming up. Yeah, most, coming up soonest. Close to, closest in the future? God, closest. words are great. <laughs> Uh, you know what we're trying to say is uh, July 22nd through 24th uh, at Helium in Philadelphia. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess if you can, if you're in Philly, go check that out. But otherwise, I mean, the Lost Album, you can get online. We'll put up links to everything, too, uh, when we post this stuff. So, Oh, and um, uh, the Ted Alexandro Show live streams every Thursday on YouTube and Rockfin. And, uh, and every Sunday I've been doing a, a live stream with Eddie Pepitone. So that's, oh, dude. that's ongoing. We have a great time, man. <laughs> Eddie and Ted figure it all out. Dude, Pepitone kills me, dude. That guy. Oh, great. Have you seen the thing he does where he heckles himself and he runs no. out in the audience? He, he'll, he'll say, he's like, why aren't people more specific with heckles? And then he'll run out into the audience and sit down and go, say something about his childhood. Like, you are a fucking stupid kid. And then he'll come back up and be like, ah, oh, and he'll like, ah, dude. Had That's me in so tears. Fun. This was probably a couple of years ago, but that dude is a genius. He he used to heckle uh, Conan. Conan had him on the show so as a <laughs> character. Yeah, yeah. So funny. That's right. Love Eddie. Oh, man. Well, Ted, I really appreciate it, dude. Thank you so much for taking the time and uh, best pleasure. of luck with everything, man. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks for having me and uh, yeah, we'll man. do it again down the line. Love it, dude. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.